This episode is brought to you by Bray Wealth Insights. As an entrepreneur, there are many things to know. Bray Wealth Insights is in the business of helping business owners gain clarity. Many owners do not understand the importance of the relationship between their business, their personal estate plan, and their workforce. Bray Wealth Insights helps entrepreneurs to build business continuation plans, recruit, retain, and reward key employees. And with cutting edge surveys and tools, they help owners to understand what their workforce values. For more information, you can contact Bray Wealth Insights at info at braywi.com. That's I-N-F-O at B-R-A-E-W-I.com. Now back to our regular scheduled programming. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Leverage and Beverage, where we will talk all things business building and beverages. I'm Greg Sobosinski. On the show today, we have Stephen Tuck of Anglo American Tools. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Greg. Good to have you on, Steve. Um, so let's let's kind of jump into um, some of the stuff about your business. But first, what's on your mind, Steve? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's as the old saying goes, it's like another day, another dollar. You mm. know, every day we have to just go to work, do your best, uh, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. You know, your integrity and you got to carry your name with you and do the best you can. Yeah, and you you've been in business for for a while, so I think that's something that um, is means a lot coming from from someone like you, because uh, I think a lot of people sometimes they get they get burned out after a couple of years. But you've been in business for um, over forty plus years, is that right? So uh, you know, the family business itself is now uh, over fifty years old. Okay, uh, and I joined officially after graduation from college, so it's been thirty nine years. But if you Count the times in the uh, in the warehouse, uh, you know, during the summer or after school or on holidays or whenever mom and dad would drag <laughs> me into that warehouse because that was the cheapest form of babysitting. Uh, you know, the the warehouse warehouse guys were my babysitters, and <laughs> but you know what, you learn. Yeah, you learn a work ethic and you learn uh, the value of doing a good day's work. Mm. Yeah, so let's jump into to what Anglo-American Tools is and um, I guess how this business got started and if you want to just dive maybe into that backstory a little bit. Well, basically as a family, uh, I, I'm an only child. I was born in England. Mom and dad were born in England. And dad was one of those dynamic, very uh, personable salespeople. Hmm. Um, I mean, he convinced my mom to marry him. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that says a lot right there, you know, my mom. So- Anyway, he was presented with an opportunity in 1969. Here I am, seven years old, you know, mom's sending me off to school. And the opportunity was to move to move to America for a year and get the business started for a company over there called James Neal. So, you know, mom and dad thought about it long and hard. They made up a, a piece of paper, lined down the middle, pros on one side, cons on the other. Okay. Okay, mom's never left England. Okay, yeah, this is a big opportunity. You've heard all about the United States, the land of opportunity. So what do we do? So mom says, in the end, she says, I'll tell you what, I'll agree to it under one condition. I want my own bank account, and I want enough money in there so that me and Stephen can come back to England whenever we want. Dad said, okay, deal. 
So anyway, uh, that bank account now has grown. Uh, who knows how much? Because she never went, we never went back full time. Um, so we moved over there, and um, you know, we we used to go back every year to visit family, and because that's where all our family was. So mm-hmm. it it was a big adjustment. So, but you know, mom and dad were running the business over there, working for somebody else. And after a few years, management changed hands in Sheffield, and they said you know, Derek, we want you to do things our way. And he says, well, you want to do it that way, then that's fine. You go right ahead. And he left, moved next door into a 4,000 square foot warehouse and office and started Anglo-American Tools in October of 1973. You know, at that time, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, you know, it was, uh, okay, uh, you know, it was in what, fifth grade or uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. So all I knew was, okay, I'm working in the warehouse. I'm helping out like I'd always been doing since I was seven years old. Uh, Fast forward through the years, you know, college comes and, um, you know, the decision is made that I will join the company because we were starting a new division of woodwork and machinery. And so, uh, you know, and there we go. We just uh, continued from there. And uh, so that's sort of how the company got started. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's sort of how I uh, made the decision to start after school. I sort of tailored some of my learning at Drexel University, uh, whereas originally I was all involved in electrical engineering, thinking I was going to be, uh, you know, biomedical engineering profession and uh, all that. And in addition, because I, I kind of figured that I wasn't going to become a professional soccer player. <laughs> but <laughs> Is that, was that the goal originally in your I, head? <laughs> you know what? All, all kids, whether it's a you know, firefighter or whatever, they want to be a sports star of some sort. Sure. And uh, we always had some good soccer teams with, you know, growing up with TBAA and then in Highland High School. Mm-hmm. You know, we we lost three games in four years. Wow. So you could see, I mean, we had a uh, an unbelievable soccer team that recently we were inducted into the Highland High School Hall of Fame, the Athletic Hall of Fame Wow! as a team, which was uh, an incredible achievement and something that we're quite proud of. But, uh, you know, going back to business, uh, you know, went to Drexel Electrical Engineering partway through, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was a struggle. So I said uh, they offered a curriculum called Commerce and Engineering, where you could declare a field of concentration. So I decided Electrical Engineering and Marketing and as it was, we were going to be, dad was taking on a new division called uh, Electra Beckham, which was specialized in woodworking machinery. Got it. Okay. So, which, you know, when you're looking at German motors at 50 Hertz versus 60 Hertz over here. So therefore everything's running faster, capacitive start, induction run, all of this terminology sort of, uh, I was able to uh, understand, decipher and help with the the growth of that tool pro that machinery program through the eighties. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, uh, you know, the company itself specialized in industrial products a lot in the seventies. We started working more way, more towards the hardware market in the eighties with true value and ACE hardware and do it best and, and people like that. And so, so the company began more on the industrial side. Correct. So in du- large industrial tools. Correct. You know, selling to people like, you know, the Granger, McMaster car, MSC, uh, people like that. Um, and there was a lot of tool shops all over, all across the country. You're buying, uh, you know, just basic American patterned files or soft faced hammers or wrenches, tools, anything that they would need, um, you know, 
in a manufacturing facility or a mm -hmm. maintenance operation where they had to use tools to fix something, repair something, build something, mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. So, and then during the eighties, more in the hardware and also the woodworking. So we started doing that quite a bit. Uh, and then about 1990, the, the factory sold to uh, Matabo. So we were sort of, um, it, it, it was timing anyway, because the exchange rate was going crazy. Our products were not getting, were not be as competitive. And we started really doing a lot of growth in the hand tool side, especially to the automotive aftermarket. So through the nineties, that's where that really, uh, you know, exploded and catapulted. So do you remember a lot of this stuff? Like when these decisions were being made and some of the reasons why, because in any business you have, things might be going well for a while. And then suddenly things change, new um, dynamics come to the market. And it seems to be what, what's happened, at least part in part there, where you know there are certain areas, whether it was because of the exchange rate or whatever, things weren't what they used to be. You know, I believe that you you have to learn to adapt. You have to be nimble. You have to be able to understand the market and see where the potential is uh, when you're making a decision. As I described before, how you know, mom and dad sat down before they even came to this country and said pros and cons. I think in business, you have to look at that and say, okay, I have an opportunity possibly with a new product line, or here's an opportunity with a customer, a new customer. And, um, you know, how should we approach hmm. the, the market? How should we approach the customer? What kind of uh, growth expectations can we expect? And by, you know, everybody has a certain bandwidth within their mental capacity how do you you know make the decision to say you know what i'm going to spend less time over here because i need to spend more time over here right or possibly it gets to the point where the workload becomes such where it makes sense to we need to hire uh, an individual somebody else to assist with that direction that we're going to be making as a company now when i started you know, obviously back in the 70s, okay, I was a warehouse worker. Um, in college, I did uh, actually go back as a co-op job because my parents were frustrated with the warehouse staff and with lost the warehouse manager. So it says, I'll come in, I'll take care of things. You know, I think I'm all, you know, all knowledgeable, you know, <laughs> as they say, you know, hire a college student while, you know, while he still knows everything, right? <laughs> so, you know, I went in a warehouse supervisor and you know, we fired two people and I hired three people and we started growing from there. And when I joined, I, I gave myself a title, I guess, marketing manager. And then we were, I was business development manager, sales manager, uh, general manager, vice president, uh, you know, and it's just a matter of working your way up. And, and all of this was done in conjunction with mom and dad. You know, dad was a very strict and very tough businessman mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't wasn't one to you know pat you on the back and give you a lot of accolades and uh and, and give you a lot of handouts either okay it was something that you had to earn you had to work for it and that's that's just sort of um was inherent in the dna i guess growing up hmm. on the um yeah i think work work ethic is one thing that is um, I don't know. Some people will say it's gone to the wayside in, in some ways, especially here in the U.S. in recent years. Um, but is there any stark differences between you know what you see having gone through those many different roles at Anglo American, like 
growing up versus worth work ethic of individuals now? Do you see anything that's super stark or is it, in your opinion, is it, is it pretty comparable? I know it's always dangerous to stereotype or generalize. So, sure. I, you know, in, in certain ways, I certainly don't want to insult anybody, but I, I do remember this, my at orientation at Drexel University. Uh, one of the key things that they said was, okay, everybody here in the room, look to your left and look to your right. One out of the three of you are going to graduate on time. Hmm. I looked to the left, I looked to the right, and I said, I'm going to be the one to graduate. And sure enough, I did graduate on time. <laughs> so I was happy with that. You know, fast forward now, you know, become a father and then the kids go off to college. So if I can relate to that, um, you know, kids are between 34, 32, you know, 34, 33, 32, 30, 24. So uh, they've been to various different colleges, universities across the country. And one of the things that they're saying is they are there to help prepare your child, you know, my son, my daughter, for, you know, the six or eight jobs that they're going to have in their mm. lifetime. And I thought to myself, you know, that's an interesting perspective that they do. Uh, it, it sort of tells them that, you know, don't worry if it doesn't work out in this, in your first job, you can always just go get a second job. Mm. And then if that one doesn't work out, you can always just go get another one. So it, it's, is it the university's fault? Is it the parent's fault? Is it, I, I, is it a generational fault? Uh, you know, that's hard to say, but mm. I, I know that the people that I graduated Drexel with back in 1984, I look back and many of us, uh, you know, one person was at GlaxoSmithKline for 35 years, and then he was given the opportunity to retire, call it the golden parachute, whatever you want to call it. I had another friend who was at Boeing for 37 years. I had another friend who was in an accounting firm uh, for over 35 years. And I've been at the same company for now 39 years. And it's interesting among us that we all stayed at the same company and were able to be promoted within Whereas the generation today, they always see the opportunity to be promoted to going somewhere else. Hmm. Okay. And obviously, if somebody's ambitious, you know, you have to do that. Maybe there's a glass ceiling in the place where you are currently. Maybe uh, your patience is such that you don't have time to wait. And uh, for example, you know, one of my sons, you know, he, after college, he always wanted to build roller coasters. So he went to work at Universal Studios and he was so good at quality control that they sort of put him in the quality control department and not in the design and development <laughs> department. Right. And after less than a year, he was frustrated with that and he moved on. And, you know, we had some conversations about it, but he just said, no, no, uh, you know, I, I know what I want to do and I'm not doing it here. I says, but there's a lot of learning that can happen here now. Is that to say that he did not have a good work ethic? No, that's, I'm not saying that. You know, did I, can I say that I have a better work ethic than the, than my kids do? You know, it's hard to say. Um, so I think it's when you're asking, is the work ethic more prevalent, like in our generation of 60 somethings versus today's generation of 20 or 30 somethings? Uh, it's a very subjective opinion. Uh, there are some out there that don't have any work ethic, <laughs> but there are some that 
have a work ethic and they can uh, they can multitask far better than you know me or any of my friends can sure so yeah it's almost like that there's like a uh, preoccupation with um, such a vast variety of options available you know mm-hmm. what i mean there's right. there's t- so many options of where you can go and there's almost some merit to what that person at the university of your children said he said you know you can get a new job go to a new place and there's all there, there's first freedom in that too mm-hmm. um so on one hand it's you know maybe the the lesson is you can fall off and get back on the horse and that's a good lesson to learn there's also merit to the side of people who you know have are in their in their 50s or 60s have worked at one place for a long time and there is merit with also sticking to something and becoming perhaps even more proficient in that thing right. um so it's almost there there's two sides of this coin and like you're saying i don't think one's necessarily better or worse it's just it's just different in learning how to to navigate that i guess right you know and from uh, from your own perspective you have to determine you know what is it that you need or what is it that your family needs mm. uh, you know security is is very important um you know what is what about your long-term future mm. you know knowing that if you're going to be work, working for a, a large company and you know that you know, you stay there for 30 years 40 years okay that there's a pension that comes with it that your retirement can be so fulfilling because of the uh, the security blanket that your company and your devotion to that company has provided. Whereas if you're jumping from here, there, and everywhere over the years, you're not really establishing a nest egg of sorts for the future. You know, you're always working for the now. Whereas uh, I know working for mom and dad, you know, and, and dad was as frugal as they came. Like, you know, you know I pay more than $15 for a dinner. Okay, whatever, you know, but it also meant a lot by saying that, you know, you need, you have income and you have expenses and part of your expenses should be your savings. Mm-hmm. Those savings, yes, you need some emergency fund for a rainy day in case something happens next month, but you also need to ensure that your your future and your retirement, you know, is 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 part of your planning as you're, as you're going through life, as you're going through your working career. Sure. Um, So let's bounce back to, you know, some of these different roles that you played at Anglo-American. So, you know, you were graduating and you come back, you were um, a manager in in the warehouse for, for Mm part-time and you kind of move up through some of these different ranks. Um, You know, how, I guess that in, in part allows you to kind of see the inside of the business. And so as you're going through this, are there things that you're seeing like, oh, wait, this could this could be improved or or this could be improved? Um, and what, what stuck out to you during that time frame of kind of bouncing around through those different roles? You know, obviously at the time, you don't fully understand it, but when you look back at it, mm-hmm. you can see the, the benefit. And one of the things as being the president of my company now for over 20 years, 22 years, is the fact that. I know that I can. I would never give a project to anybody that I would not be able to do myself. Mm. Okay, um, you know, certainly there are some. You know, hey, develop a website. Okay, can I do? You know, do I know how sure, to do that? Sure. No, but you know, something like okay, we need to you know stock the shelves. We need to disassemble the shelves, and we need to you know move this product over there, and we need to do the packaging for this. So we need to contact our customers and tell them about price increases. We need to 
you know, whatever it may be, we need to uh, develop a PowerPoint presentation because we're going to be making a major presentation at a certain customer's location. Mm -hmm. Or we uh, should we go into this particular market and go to their trade show and and make an investment? And uh, one of the things that I've always considered over the years is that there's sort of two uh, two investments, you know, in theory three, but two investments major that uh, I always look at is like, okay, the marketing investment, mm -hmm. but also the inventory investment, because from a marketing standpoint, I know what our company is capable of doing. I know what our employees have the capacity to handle. And when we look at how does maybe a new opportunity with a new factory, how does that weigh in on whether we should accept it or, or just reject them as far as their product line is concerned? You know, I have to look at the market and say, how does it dovetail with our current product range? How would my customers accept it? And therefore, I would have to talk with them about making an inventory investment and a marketing investment. All of this knowledge has been gained over the years. You know, back in 1984, would I have been able to make some of those decisions? No. But in meetings with, uh, you know, Derek, you know, my dad and, uh, you know, our, our national sales manager at the time, uh, or my mom as the bookkeeper, treasurer, secretary, whatever you want to, whatever her exact title was, that, you know, you recognize the process by which you would make some of these decisions. And of course, over the years, as I've gained knowledge in the warehouse, in the customer service department, that was one of my favorites. Mm. This is when people would call all the time. Okay. This was just before fax machines. Fax machines just started coming into play. It was well before emails. So the main process was people were phoning in they were calling in orders or sometimes they would mail in orders and we would have to sort through you know 50 50 envelopes you'd sort them out you'd get you know 20 checks you'd have 20 orders and 10 of something else but you'd have to process those orders call the customer advise them let them know that yes we got the we got the orders or we're processing it this item's back ordered so you learn a lot about the face-to-face -face, albeit on the telephone mm -hmm. Uh, through that. And then as the 90s hit, and now we're starting to really grow in the automotive aftermarket, it's a new space. We weren't doing the woodwork and machinery anymore. Now this is a new opportunity, but look at all the knowledge that I've uh, I've gleaned over the past six or seven years. You know, now I'm just about 30 years old. You know, I'm feeling, you know, even, even stronger and better than I was when I was a, you know, a college, uh, you know, a new, recent uh, college graduate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we, you have to you have to take all your knowledge that you've that you've had, but you never want to be complacent either. And you don't want to um, you know think that you're above everything else and above everyone else and on top of the world. You have to recognize that that person that's sitting there that's doing that job today. I did that. Hmm. I did that job, and there was no way that I would um, expect the lack of respect for that person that's doing that role. Mm -hmm. Everybody, all our employees deserve the utmost respect. Uh, and it's true with any, any coworker that anybody has. Hmm. Going back to the name here. So Anglo-American is that, and I, I, I was reading a little bit about this. Um, so part of my understanding is that there's uh, tools that your, your father, Derek thought were either superior for some 
um, for certain reasons, and he wanted to bring those to the American market. Is is, is that is that correct? Correct. So uh, as I said, we were sent over here in 1969 by a company called James Neal Company, mm-hmm. and they they're still around today, making Spear and Jackson. They they make several different product lines, but when it was sent over here the whether taxation corporate wise whatever it was set up as a company and they called it british distribution services Mm. bds that was the name of the company (laughs) so when uh as i said when management changed hands in 1973 and dad decided you know what i'm going to start my own company i know all the all the players i know all the customers and we'll just do a similar product line because he had been approached sort of uh being poached, uh, I guess, or being, uh, you know, inquiries coming his way as far as uh, helping out with their product line from Europe and how to sell in the United States. So when when he set up his own operation, he was saying, you know, back then you had a directory and he always wanted to be one more, you know, he wanted to be in front of BDS, British Distribution Mm -hmm. Services. So in the alphabet, what do you do? Uh, Right. You know, British American tools, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, Anglo was very much, a you know, an English, uh, you know, synonym, I guess, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, something that was common to just call somebody from England, you know, the Anglophile or an Anglo person, Anglo-Saxon is where mm-hmm. it came from. So he struck upon uh, the actual name of the company was Anglo-American Distribution mm. at first, and uh, but then right before, you know, while I was in college, uh, we actually had a fire in our warehouse. And that's part of the reason why I came back to help restore it, because a, a lot of the employees, especially the ones in the warehouse, were tired of doing all that the dirty work type of thing. And it was very frustrating. So I came in, finished getting everything cleaned up, hired new people and everything. So at that time, renamed it Anglo-American Enterprises Corporation, becoming an S-Corp. Mm. Okay. And then, you know, as we go along, what does Anglo-American Enterprises Corporation mean? So eventually I said, let's call ourselves Anglo-American Tools. Mm. Whether you call it DBA, Anglo-American Tools, or whatever you want to trading as, whatever you want to call it. So that's what we're known as today. Sure. And that, that, that's an interesting point because I think a lot of people, you know, they have these names sometimes in their mind. There's also the other side of that where they might mm-hmm. like a name, but then, you know, um, how does it resonate with the customer? You know what I mean? Um, in, in some ways, there, there are some that will, um, it might make sense for, from the business owner's perspective, hey, this makes sense. We're mm-hmm. this enterprise company. This is what we do. But does the customer know what that means? And so from a marketing perspective, does that does that matter at all? Right. Enterprises, corporation could be anything. Could be an entertainment, could be who knows what. So right. that's when uh, you know, we wanted it to be more specific. And it's funny today, some of our old customers, we, they still have us in, as a vendor, Anglo-American distribution. Some customers still have us Anglo-American enterprise. You know, officially, corporate-wise, you know, if we land a new customer, we have to sign all these contracts. It has to be, you know, we do it as Anglo-American Enterprises Corporation, but doing business as Anglo-American tools. We want to be known as a source for superior quality European professional hand tools. Mm. So with that, I actually uh, just poured my beverage there we go. So uh, we I'm, got... I'm going to grab one here in a second too. So give me yes. a second here. Okay. And in the meanwhile, just give give the uh, the listeners some of your some of your tasting notes on that. As, as for me, I'm a, I'm very much a beer man. 
um, you know, maybe in the past had some wine, had some mixed drinks, but uh, in the end, uh, there's nothing better than a good beer. And, and, and the secret with a good beer too, is in the way that it's poured, there's almost, it's almost like a science. So when you're pouring a beer, you need to have it come from the tap or the bottle. You need to have it splash down into the glass and, and, and let it, let all those bubbles come up and have a good head on the top of the beer. Uh, I'm, I'm always uh, skeptical sometimes when you, when they pour a beer and it's as flat as possible at, at the top and they've poured it so slowly that it hasn't, hasn't allowed all the, the carbonation to come out. And what happens is then you pour it into your belly and that's where the carbonation comes out. So, but there's nothing like a good, good tasting beer. Now that was an excellent uh, introduction. I wish I had some beer on, on tap here so I could uh, so join you, but instead I have a, um, a single malt whiskey here. So we'll, we'll do that with you. There, there you go. A few years ago, my wife and I went to uh, Scotland and mm. uh, one of the things that we did was, um, uh, as we were doing a little pub crawl through Edinburgh or wherever, uh, it's like we would have a wee dram mm. in each location. And there's uh, something interesting about the Scottish accent yeah. when you're talking about a wee dram. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. It's, I, I um, So I, I'm I'm big into beer. I don't know if we've spoken about this yet, but I worked at a brewery for a bit. And okay. so I've homebrewed for about you know 12 years or so as well. Um, so, you know, I concur with a lot of things you're saying about, you know, how the beer pours, how the beer presents, um, how the beer will upset your stomach if you don't pour it properly. And sometimes you go to a lot of places, especially here, um, you'll get a beer and it'll be completely flat across the top. That's uh, correct. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's frowned upon here, but I'm guessing it's frowned upon back, uh, back home in England as well. Huh? Well, I guess a lot of people think that they want to get the most for their money. The most for their money, value for money. And in fact, value for money, if I could just circle that back real quick, that was one of our taglines for our company for many, many years. Mm. I, you know, my dad loved that expression, value for money, because you wanted to you recognize that if it's going to be a superior quality product that you're offering, there's probably going to be a higher price involved as well. Mm. But you want to be able to convince the customer that Yes, it's a higher price, but you're getting a better quality product. Now, over here, yes, they have glasses and you fill a beer to the top. Uh, in Europe, uh, I guess a lot of places, um, the, the alcohol industry, the beer industry, whatever, it's very standardized. So it's going to be you know, 0.2 centiliters, 0.3 centiliters, 0.4 centiliters. You know, you've all heard the liter. Mm-hmm. But if you you know if you look at some of these glasses, there's actually a line. Yeah, a little indication. This is 33 centiliters. Mm. Sorry, I was saying 0. 0.3, 0. 0.3 liters, but three uh, three centiliters, 33 centiliters is right there. So mm -hmm. the beer comes to there, and the head is above it. Sure. So by the time the beer the head settles, you're still getting your money's worth of beer. You know, going back to anything that you any business uh, any business proposition. You want to make sure that you're getting a good value for money, and 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 sometimes, especially over the past couple of years, yeah, you know, there are certain professions, certain industries that could be accused of price gouging during the COVID era, which you know was somewhat frustrating, hmm. um, you know, because they knew they had a captive audience. Sure. Okay. Um, you know, as for us, you know, we we are trying to ensure that our prices are 
our products are competitively priced in the marketplace. Uh, because, you know, we're not alone. There's competition out there. I think in any industry, there's going to be competition. How do you distinguish yourself from that competition? You know, with us, we always say, yes, a superior quality product. But if somebody's going to say, yeah, but it's twice the price. So I'll stick with my product. Whereas if you just say, hey, we're, you know, 10 to 20% higher, but you're going to get a 50% better product. Mm. So from the value for money perspective, that's where a customer, you know, that's when you perk his ears up uh, to take a second look or to consider your product. Sure. So for you, as far as your um, your company's book of tools that you guys work with, and I'm guessing you um, distribute to other people who distribute, is that correct? You guys a whole, a whole to a wholesaler? Correct. Strictly a wholesaler. Uh, you know, we manufacturers agent manufacturers rep we are mm -hmm. termed as the manufacturer here in the united states so for example we we negotiate with some of our customers and do private label business got it you know so then we have to go over to the the factory and and, and find out what their credentials are what their particulars are as far as uh, you know can they do laser do they do you know etching do they do tampo print you know what what can they do and of course the customer he wants his logo a certain size a certain uh, clarity mm. um you know so we uh, we we represent the manufacturer as if they were here themselves and gotcha. that's one of the things that we hold dear dear to our hearts is that we want to be uh, you know seen as being an extension and a genuine partner of our factory partners that are in Europe mm -hmm. so and obviously as as they grow uh, as we grow their product line and their their business grows, you know, is there always the risk that they might say, okay, thank you for getting us to a certain point. We'll take it from here, mm. you know, or let's just keep it going. Uh, we've, we've have some um, factory partners that we've worked with since we opened the door in 1973. Okay. In fact, my wife and I just went, uh, was it six, eight months ago in March? Uh, we went and visited one of the factories in Portugal, an old file factory hmm. since 1856. Wow. Okay. Um, and, you know, these, we used to joke that they, they used to produce miles of files, you know, files and rasps in olden times or even all the way up to the 70s and 80s, they were a big business. Okay because everybody needed a file or a rasp to shape a piece of metal or to sharpen something or whatever. Today with laser technology in the uh, manufacturing facilities, files aren't needed as much, but it's still there. Soft-faced hammers, another thing. Adjustable wrenches. These are all product lines that we've represented since the 1970s. What is a soft-faced hammer? So for example, you have a hammer or a mallet and there is a distinct difference between oh, them. Oh, got it, okay. But it's, it's a matter of the face. Okay, uh, everybody's familiar with a claw hammer. Yeah, the most popular being the S wing. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, uh, you know that's the carpenter's hammer of choice. It's a claw hammer because it has a face, and then it also has a claw on the backside, so that if you mess up the nail, you can take out the nail. Hmm. Uh, a saw faced hammer is defined as something where the material that is being used to strike something is not made of steel, but made of possibly nylon, rawhide. Rubber, copper, brass, aluminum. Um, I think I named all of them. And there's basically five different uh, densities or hardnesses of the nylon. Hmm. So 
take, for example, um, you know, an application where you need to strike a steel object on a on a machine or on a car, something like that. You hit it with a steel, steel on steel, mm. you know, the steel is going to leave some marks on the steel. Sure. Okay. You take a nylon hammer and you strike a steel object. That steel object will move, but it's not going to leave any marks from the nylon. Got it. Okay. The nylon's going to start to, you know, deteriorating because it's it's the one that's taken the brunt of the force. And we have dead blow hammers, which in other words, when you strike something, there's no rebound. There's no bounce back. Mm. So, uh, and the nylon faces are replaceable. The copper faces are replaceable. The aluminum, uh, you know, they're all replaceable. So, you know, yeah, all different uh, applications. No, I, yeah, I think the, the tool market, again, it's not something that I'm intimately involved with, but it is interesting to see how, you know, that, that it changes over time. So if you were to, to say like from a, maybe a percentage breakdown of, you know, you said you were much more industrial tools early on in the company, right. And you've had this other, the shift towards just like American hand tools. Um, what, what is, first of all, what's, what's the most popular tool that you guys work with or get, or get orders for. And then secondarily, I guess, what is the other breakdown of that, that pie versus tool like type? like hand tools, industrial tools, or maybe other any other category you, you have? Yeah, as I said, in the, in the 70s, a lot of industrial tools. Uh, 80s, more of the hardware and woodworking. So we did a lot with woodworking type tools. But one of the things uh, that we've had since the mid-70s is the Knipex uh, pliers, hmm. a company over in Wuppertal, Germany, the premier plier manufacturer in the world. And they were always looking to see what they can do about expanding the market. My dad went over there, met them and said, I could sell that plier because they would have this, they were introducing this special alligator plier back in the mid to late seventies, self-gripping. It would be going up against channel lock. Hmm. Okay. It's going to be more expensive than channel lock. Again, going back to the value for money proposition. Now, as we go through the years, we start to expand in the different pliers that we're able to sell into the market. And once we hit the automotive aftermarket, we also had the Cobra plier, which was this push button version of the alligator plier so today we still sell loads and loads of uh, pliers there's no doubt about it but one of the things about our position in the marketplace is such that we are well respected as being a an integral partner in the united states for european brands and european factories that are looking to do something in the united states Mm. so we get approached many times from different people and that's where i have to make that that, that call, that decision, to, is this a complementary product line? Is it going to take up too much time? Is it going to detract from what I'm already doing? Or is it perfectly complementary? About 15 years ago, I was approached by a company. Uh, it's actually from Israel, and it's a thread repair tool. And what happened was they, uh, the gentleman had invented the product, started marketing it <clears throat> to a distributor, and then Alcoa, we know all know the big, big Alcoa. They looked at that and they said, they went back to the factory and said, that's a very interesting product line. I am going to, uh, you know, we would like to assume the distributorship in the United States. But the problem is, is that Alcoa was also manufacturing a product called Helicoil, which was an insert for replacing a damaged thread. Mm. You know, if, if, if you had an internal damaged thread, what you would do is you would drill it out and then you would push in an insert, but you would need to know the specific size. Uh, 
The Nest product line is universal because it's infinitely adjustable. So it'll handle SAE or metric. Course are fine because the two cutters sort of flex a little bit and it can be used on right-handed and left-handed. I think Alcoa saw that and said, that could be trouble for our existing product line. So that old adage, keep your friends close, your enemies closer. Mm. So what they decided was, let's keep our customers close, but let's keep our competition even closer. They took the product line, they took it, they walked down the hall, they opened up a door and they put it in the closet and they closed the door. So fast forward a few years uh, after some frustration from the factory, they hired a new sales manager saying, yeah, we've got to do something. We got to get some sales. So he knew of our company. So Nitsan came to me and said, Stephen, we would like to, we'd like to work with you. We've got this product line. Come take a look at it. And they were at a trade show. And uh, I went over there and, uh, and looked at it. I says, you know what? We can do something with this product line. So the following week, we went actually went to another trade show. And we sat there at the Georgia World uh, at the aquarium and down in Atlanta during a during a cocktail party. We sat there at a table and sort of one of those theories, you know, on a cocktail napkin, we said, okay, we'll do this and do that. We stood up, we shook hands, and here it is 15 years later. And mm. we're they're a very valuable partner. So when you're asking which product line is our, our hot topic today, it's got to be the Nest Thread Repair Tool. Mm. Okay, because it's it's just so uh, universal. And it's interesting exposing it to so many different customers. Uh, as you can imagine, the first couple of years, a lot of training, a lot of educating, a lot of explanation. And uh, that's where, you know, patience and perseverance and that, ha has to come in play. And that comes on you guys as well. You guys are part of that education role, correct, right. on how these tools work. We're the marketing vehicle. Mm. We're also stocking it. We're the inventory vehicle. Got and, it. Uh, you know, am I stocking the right balance of products you know we've got an external we've got an internal we've got a combination set i've got an external set which how many of each should i buy right and then all of a sudden somebody comes along and says oh well we need you know 50 external sets oh okay well i'm just new and i've got 20 on the shelf you know but you just start to grow and you have right. to make sure that you you know one of the things that my dad always taught me and uh, explained was that make sure that you control the growth don't let growth control you. Hmm. And, um, you know, to a certain degree, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, bit of advice. Um, you know, some people say, yeah, but if you, you know, if you borrow a lot of money, you know, then you can really, really grow, you know, but then as my dad always said, it says, yeah, but then you have to wake up in the morning and you have to look at yourself in the mirror. And, you know, do you want that kind of stress or do you want to just get out there and control the growth yourself? and develop uh, sort of like a snowball, mm. you know, control that snowball growth. Yeah. It's an interesting point. It's something we've actually talked about with other business owners on this podcast is, you know, sometimes I think people get to a point where they start to pursue growth for just for the sake of growth. There's a time when growth makes sense, when things are kind of congealing the snowball ideology you're talking about. But other times I think people get wrapped into this, um, whether it's, instant gratification or whatever is that I need to grow and I need to grow now. And so they'll start doing whatever they can just to grow. Meanwhile, they kind of put to the wayside how that will impact their life, their life, whether it makes it more complicated, whatever the case, I have to hire this many more employees. Well, what does that do to the business? Do I need another warehouse or what, what does that look like? And um, I don't know. I, I think, I think the, 
the pursuit of growth for the sake of growth isn't always the right decision. Maybe sometimes it is, but by and large, I think it's better just to um, do as you're doing. I think that's a good a good metric to follow is slow, steady, but good, predictable, you know? Right. And and you also have to, you know, this is where you really have to make your, your an intelligent analysis and make the right decision. Again, piece of paper, pros on one side, cons on the other side, and write it down. But there was some opportunity years ago where, you know, should we expand? Should we grow? Uh, I had an opportunity to move from our 23,000 square foot warehouse, move into a 40, 42,000 square foot warehouse. Mm. You know, uh, at the time we were busting at the seams. Um, on hindsight, I'm glad we stayed where we are because mm. otherwise our overhead would be so high. But then again, who's to know? Maybe I could have turned that building around and sold it again and made a boatload of money and been able to retire and be on a sailboat today. Mm. Who knows? But, you know, one thing that you can't do is you can't look back and and, and have regrets mm. because you have to be able to make sure that at that time you make the best decision possible given the information that you have. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and like, it looks like from um, your description of, you know, where, where you guys position yourself in the market as a wholesaler, I think sometimes the general perception of a wholesaler is just one who makes the connection between the manufacturer and who the distribution partners are. But I think what, what you guys are doing is much more um, nuanced than that. You're, you, yes, you, you do that, but it's also this almost like research and development. You guys are out there finding new tools and also the education portion of educating them how these tools might fit into their current repertoire of what they have and how this tool is maybe not popular yet, but you can see the vision for where it can fit going forward. That's right. Yeah. You have to, <clears throat> you have to sort of uh, have you, have your pulse, you know, have your, have your finger on the pulse of the market itself and understand where a product might really benefit. And as I said, we did a lot of education on that nest thread repair tool. Um, today, yeah, there are still people that come up, oh, I've never seen that before. But, you know, when we're going to a, a Snap-on show or a Mac Tools or Matco show or Cornwell Tool show or some of these other uh, industry shows, the people, they know about the tool now. And mm -hmm. what's very encouraging is when you have, you know, their uh, distributors bringing over other distributors to, hey, you got to come take a look at this. Check this out. I got involved last year. I went out and sold five sets the first couple of weeks. You know, that kind of, that kind of, uh, those kind of accolades really, hmm. you know, convinced the other distributor, yeah, maybe I should get involved as well. Mm -hmm. You know, but one of the things with being in the position that we are in is I always have to look at the overall picture of the market because, as you say, I'm a wholesaler. At the end of the day, I'm a wholesaler. But in theory, I'm selling to a wholesaler who's selling to a retailer, who's selling to the end user. But I'm also selling to a, a distributor or a retailer that's selling to the end user. Mm -hmm. One thing we're not doing is bypassing all of that and selling directly to the end user. Okay, we're a very strong believer in selling through distribution. And part of that process, especially today with so many online resellers. Yeah, like direct to consumer. Oh boy, uh, you know, because then it's all about, okay, we know about the product. Now we're just looking for the best price. Mm. But one of the things I feel very strongly about is to ensure that we have an effective market channel pricing strategy in place. Okay. So my wholesalers, my distributors, they are going to get preferential pricing. Mm. 
my online resellers, their discount is not going to be as much because it's recognized that a brick and mortar with external sales people are going to have a, are going to require a higher overhead in order to operate. Sure. Whereas a, you know, some third party reseller that just wants to list your product, you know, he's making, you know, he's working on 10 points or, you know, 15 points. Whereas a regular distributor needs to, he needs 30 or he needs 35 or 40% in order to properly take care of his customer. And when I say that, there's a salesperson that works for an industrial per, you know, industrial company and they go out and they make sales calls on all these manufacturing facilities and end users, but they're there every week. And, they, and, and that end user relies on that person as a valuable partner. But we want to demonstrate to that distributor that we want to be a valuable partner to them and support them as they sell to the end user. Mm. Yeah. So if the end user has any questions, you know, we want to an, an immediate, you know, the ability to immediately respond and get that end user taken care of. You know, you hear stories about, uh, you know, like uh, an online reseller is selling the same product, but he can get it for $50 cheaper or $10 cheaper, whatever. And then what happens is, so that distributor has been in there to try to sell it a few times. Uh, well, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. And then he goes in the following time. Oh, I see that you've got that product. Yeah. I bought it on Amazon or I bought it on this online reseller. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. All right. And then a couple of weeks later, he comes back in. Hey, listen, I've got a problem with this tool. You know, can you help me out with that? What's the distributor to do? Okay. For one thing, it's like, well, you didn't buy the product from me. Mm. Okay. You, you didn't give me the opportunity to uh, profit or to make a margin. So how can I, how can I help you? But listen, there's a fine line there between you are a customer of other products of mine, but just not that product. So that's the distributor's call on how he's going to assist that end user customer. Hmm. But one thing that we want to try to ensure is that there is a market channel pricing strategy in place so that I'm not selling to an online reseller at $10 and then selling to my distributor customers at $10 or $15. Because eventually the distributor is going to come back saying, I, I, I can't I can't support your program anymore. And I think uh, right at the beginning, I talked about integrity. Uh, and that's one of the things that we want to be known for is that we have uh, a strategy in place to ensure that there is an equal opportunity and an equal playing field among the various ways of uh, you know selling product through a supply chain. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is a fine line there. You know, the, the situation where you, um, kind of showcase the distributor. Yes, he has other products, but the product they're asking about is not the one that they bought through him. And so what's his obligation there, if any, to where, and I guess, like you said, it's distributor's call, but it's often one of those ones that, that's hard because in in um, it's almost like this problem that's been in the service business for a while that well, it's, it's that way. It's making its way into like the, the consumer goods um, side of things where on the service side, it's like, um, you know, you might have somebody who, you know, like an attorney who gets paid for their time and, you know, where's the line where, you know, this is what the case is about. They have other questions about other things. Um, they're already a client, but do those questions now get lumped into just this relationship we have? Right. Or is that a separate 
engagement. You know what, you know what I mean? So in, in a knowledge-based field, it becomes very important to kind of put parameters on this is the livelihood, this is the knowledge, this is the product. It's not tangible, but it's the product that you're paying for. Um, and it seems to be a little more stark in the, you know, the physical goods market where you can say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't sell that tool to you. So it's not really my purview to assist, but then you have the relationship aspect as well. So it, it is a, it's a very interesting conundrum that you bring up. Right. Well, with relationships, I mean, yes, a company is selling to a company, but at the end of the day, it's a person person is buying from a person. Right. And the person has to trust you and the person has to enjoy doing business with you. Uh, you know, if, if, if you lose that touch or lose that ability, you know, it's always going to be, uh, you know, a challenge going forward. Hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously with our customers as well, it's, it's not like there's, it's the same buyer or the same product manager or the same decision maker that's been there for, you know, 40 years sure people change and one of the things that uh you just have to recognize is that you know your name you know you have you have a name and you want to make sure that it carries some weight and some you know some value and integrity so you never want it to be said that oh yeah that person didn't didn't treat me right or mm -hmm. screwed me on a deal or or whatever you know it's it's a matter of uh you know you never want to burn a bridge and that's that's something that i also explained to my kids as well okay you want to leave this company yeah you know, because you think that there's a better opportunity somewhere else you don't want to go in there saying you know i i don't like you boss uh, yeah, <laughs> i think you're a jerk uh and i don't like working here and i'm moving on because hmm. you never know what's going to happen you never know what's going to happen in the future i'll give you a quick case in point mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, we have a distributor that's, uh, that's in the automotive aftermarket, and there was a product manager there. Always got along great with him. Okay, you know, would he put every product in of mine? No, but it was done out of respect, and it was, you know, the the answer that was given as far as when he said no or when he said yes, it was, you know, one of saying, okay, well, well thank you very much, but. I think there may be an opportunity for you going forward, but we'll circle back on this, but let's get started on this other product line first, but then we'll bring the other product line in later. So it was always done if, uh, in uh, with respect. Anyway, he left the company. You know, I gave him a little uh, goodbye email saying, hey, wish you well. You know, it's been great working with you and uh, look forward hopefully to see you sometime. Anyway, fast forward two years later, uh, this was just a couple of weeks ago, shows up at my booth. He brings on, uh, brings a couple of his uh, co-workers with him. And here, you know, he's working for a major, major uh, automotive aftermarket supplier now. And he said, Steve, I wanted to bring this, bring these guys by. This is the product manager from the category manager for your product line code. So love this product line. Can you give him a demonstration and show him what it's all about? Mm. I said, oh, sure, great to see you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, jumped right in and uh, started presenting the product. And, um, you know, it was interesting with that show too, because uh, I actually took a friend with me, loves cars. This was at the SEMA show at the, the big uh, automotive aftermarket show mm -hmm. in Las Vegas. So uh, I brought my wife out and uh, my friend uh, Bob and his wife came out. And so the 
guess where the two wives went? They didn't go to the car <laughs> show. <laughs> they, they were at the out the North Outlet Mall, the South Outlet Mall. They, were, <laughs> they went and had lunch wherever in Paris, uh, in the Venetian. But meanwhile, uh, you know, my friend Bob, he he walked the show a little bit. He would come back to my booth and and help out and everything like that. And one of the things um, after after uh, those folks left, he says, "Is that it? yeah?" I saw the company name and you, you, you just, you just talk to them, you know, like naturally. And it's like, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, another thing that my dad explained to me many, many years ago was that never be intimidated by positions or titles or anything like that. Cause remember when they wake up in the morning and they get dressed, they're putting their pants on one leg at a time, and they're putting their shoes on one leg at a time, one foot at a time, just like you. Mm. So what's the difference? You know, so just, you know, but obviously respect is, uh, is very important. Mm. Um, as far as tool quality, this is something I really wanted to touch on. Um, when we initially started this conversation, we talked about, you know, there being perhaps a gap between some of the tool quality um, that was in Europe and bring that to America. So now when you source your tools, um, is that the only relationship? Is it just European to US or is there has that grown into other areas now based on which area has the highest quality of tools? You know, o- over the years, things have developed, things have changed. And America has a lot of very good name brands. And just like Europe has a lot of quality name brands, you know, the object of our company was to expose the American consumer or the American end user to these European brands and being able to be a single source supplier, um, which would help facilitate the the supply chain for that factory because they may not have the uh, the finances or the funds or the the time or the ability to invest in that. Whereas we could take that product line and uh, marry it with some of our other product lines mm. and bring it to our, our, our stable of customers that we have. <clears throat> I know that one of the suppliers that we bought some uh, product from in, in England, uh, as they, as they grew, they started acquiring a couple one or two different brands in England. And then they made the decision to do the reverse of what we're doing, which was very interesting. So now they're they're representing about six or eight major American brands and selling it in the UK. And I know over the years, my dad and you know the owner, Stuart at the time, and uh, I'm sorry, Mike, at the time, and now Stuart's his son, and Stuart and I are about the same age. Uh, you know, we see each other from time to time. Uh, you know, we just sort of chat about how our how our dads used to be, and and how their how their business is basically uh, somewhat replicated in a mirror. Hmm. Our model of business. Um, so it's a, I guess, to a certain certain degree, it was a very uh, a compliment. And, uh, you know, they're doing very well. But, you know, over the years, it's unfortunate to a certain degree, being an American citizen now, is that we are losing 
some of our competitiveness or some of our manufacturers for certain product lines. So for example, did you know that there are no adjustable wrench manufacturers in the United States? No. There are no file manufacturers in the United States. Huh. Okay. Uh, but in fact, when you look at Europe, there's only two adjustable wrench manufacturers in Europe. Huh. And ironically enough, they're both located in Spain, uh, probably about five miles from each other, <laughs> which you know, sort of uh, is a bit crazy. You know, one was, uh, it was originally in Sweden, but they moved the manufacturing facility down to Spain uh, you know, many years ago. But um, yeah, it, it's crazy to think. And, and some of the consolidation and some of the acquisitions and some of the mergers you know, to a great degree, it's, um, you know, are we more concerned about the elusive buck? Uh, and, or are, are we, are we interested in market growth? Hmm. Um, you know, when I look back at the Nipex pliers and I'm, I'm good friends with the owner of the, of the factory. And one of the things that, you know, you can sense from him, he, he's, he's not out to, you know, make a million dollars this year. It's a family business that's been around since 1882. He's fifth generation. He's grooming his son to be the sixth generation. And they're not interested in selling out for a billion dollars or for $10 million, whatever the value is. He's just looking at constant growth. And I've seen from the factory how, despite all the advances in automotion, automation and uh, robots and uh, all that kind of development as far as manufacturing is concerned, they've still more than doubled their staff that they have. Because now, whereas before they had maybe, you know, three or four people in the sales department and maybe about eight or 10 in the uh, customer service department, now they have over 250 in the sales department and they're branching out and reaching out all over the all over the world, establishing their own operations and mm -hmm. things like that. You know, but you look back and I remember uh, this was evident right around the time when Obama took office is that there's a company, uh, you know, it was the vice grip. Everybody knows what a vice grip is. It's a, it's a staple name, sort of like the, the crescent wrench or the mm. band-aid or something like that, Reynolds wrap. But, you know, vice grip, I think it was invented in 1923. So you're looking at a hundred years now but they're not around anymore to celebrate a hundredth anniversary. Okay. And yeah, I remember Alan Peterson as the, he's the, the family member. Um, you know, what they did was they wound up selling to a larger conglomerate who then sold to somebody else who then came in and closed the factory in DeWitt, Nebraska and moved everything out, uh, over to Asia. <laughs> what are we looking at today? There's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, consideration of sourcing different suppliers instead of depending so much on China and Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of a, a backlash, I guess, to a certain degree. But, you know, for that company, it's a shame because it eventually got to the point where the most important people in the company were the stockholders, were the shareholders. Where's our, where's our ROI? Where's our return? Where's our immediate return? We deal, we sell to some public companies, okay? Whether you call it Snap-on or you know, whomever. You know, and one of the things that they obviously look at is right around the time of the end of year, you know, what's their inventory balance? You know, what's their cash balance? 
what's you know, those, those kind of uh, numbers and statistics. Whereas when you look at a family business, and you know, Nipex Pliers is still a family business, and we are still a family business. You know, we recognize where we are as a snapshot in time, but we also recognize where we have been, and more importantly, where do we see ourselves one year from now, or where mm. do we see ourselves five years from now? Yeah, it's a good point. It's actually one of the things I wanted to bring up was, you know, what what is, what is your vision going forward for the future of of Anglo American? I think a lot of companies, you know, some companies that now are being built just for the sole purpose of selling to like a larger conglomerate or or whatever. Um, but I think I, I have a lot of respect for some of these um, companies that just kind of pursue that continual growth model, uh, especially on the, on the family business side, and just kind of keep doing it. And it's like, what's what's the end all be all? Where you have people who are going out to um, or just outsourcing everything because at the, it's almost like the last straw where um, that that is the one place where they can get a little more ROI is if they move the manufacturing overseas or um, and, and that's where, where we're at. You know, that's we try to squeeze the last drop out of whatever they can. You know, basically, yes, you want to. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities with VCs venture capitalists sure because they're looking at all kinds of industries and opportunities as to where can they uh you know come in splash the money improve sell get their money and then move on to something else you know you compare that with something like that's a more of a long-term growth concept um you know and which is better, you know, uh, maybe maybe at my age, selling to a venture capitalist and washing my hands of the company and saying, okay, I'm done. Now, that's one opportunity. But again, going back to the concept of integrity and recognizing that, you know, my heart is 100% convinced that the the growth potential and opportunities for my factory partners are such that we've had long-term relationships and who's to know what kind of decisions these VCs might make. Mm. You know, if I was to say, you know what? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to sell the company. Um, again, you know, you have one name and my name, you know, I want to, I want that always to be, uh, you know, respected. Sure. So, you know, but being a family business, I'm second generation, as I've described. Mom and dad started the company. Um, you know, dad retired in 2001. Mom and dad retired in 2001 and said, okay, we're going to go down to Florida and you know, we'll stop up every once in a while. And uh, unfortunately, dad got sick quickly and you know, mm. died about a year later, uh, which was very, you know, very sudden and very unfortunate and very unfair in life. Um you know, but we also recognize that, you know, life, life is short and you never know what's going to happen, you know, when I walk out of here or, you know, but I could live to, you know, 110, who knows, and be a burden to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, what do the kids want to do? Yeah. You know, did they want to be a third generation? Uh, I think what they sometimes look at is 
they they look at how much time and energy and effort and hard work has been put into the company. And going back to your question very early on about overall work ethic, you know, should I be presumptuous to think that they might not want to work this hard, that there are better opportunities to making a buck quicker or establishing a career that way? But, you know, it's interesting when I look at uh, the, the five kids, they each have their own strength and you put them together. And it's a, you know, it's a very interesting opportunity because, you know, one is a data engineer who can analyze data and inventory and things like that. One of them is a natural salesman mm-hmm. and they, he does real estate these days. The other is, uh, you know, went to school for logistics and supply chain management and is working at a, at a company right now doing all of that. Another is specializing in online marketing and online uh, advertising uh, within uh, within an industry. And, and the other is a sort of a um, an engineer or robotics and mechatronics and all knows all about you mm. know, you know, uh, products uh, that would be that need analyzing right. So what what is uh, what is my opportunity going forward? Where do I see myself in a year mm. or five years? Uh, and of course, you always have to be nimble. You always have to you know think it through before you jump. You know because you, know, you dip that big toe in the water to see is that water cold? You know before you decide to just jump in real quick. Sure. So but... in 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 this tenure that you you've had at, at this company so far. Um, you know, we'd like to also be glean some of the um, the pieces or shine light on some of the the hardships or just think times that might have been tougher than others. Um, so during that that tenure, um, does anything stick out to you as being a particularly um, tough issue to deal with, or strange market dynamics, or um, I don't know anything that any storms that you had to weather during during that period? Uh, certainly, uh, you know, business. Uh... You know, business has its ups and downs, uh, you know, both from a growth, uh, but also sometimes uh, it's factors that you can control, but then there are other factors that you can't control. Mm. Okay. The international exchange rate, you know, if something is five euros and I'm bringing it in and the exchange rate is a certain value, I'm bringing it in and landing it at $6. But if that exchange rate goes different, now all of a sudden I'm landing it in at $7, mm. you know, and how do we, uh, manage the price increase proposal to our customers when we're trying yeah. to establish a competitive product. So there are external factors which are hard to hard to control, but there are some factors where you can control them yourself. Um, you know, for example, maybe I had a sales manager that came to me many years ago and said, "I've decided to leave." You know, it came out of the blue. Hmm. You know. Wow, I, I I relied on him a lot. Uh, he was an integral part of the team, and now all of a sudden I find myself without him. You know, but you can't you can't just uh, roll over and die. You have to you, you have to look at look at the things and say, what can we do? How can we make it better? What do I need to do to improve? What is my contingency plan? Okay. Uh, but over the years, yeah, there have been several things. Uh, you know, as I said, back in 1981, uh, we had a fire in the warehouse. You know, it just started from an electrical fire, no fault of our own. Uh, in fact, the, 
the coffee maker manufacturer was eventually found uh, guilty or the or the product was found faulty. So they were the ones that had to assist or help with um, you know some of the costs involved in getting things cleaned up. Uh, but did we roll over and die? No. We immediately organized for two trailers to be put in our parking lot. We ran electricity to it. We set up some desks in there, brought over the paperwork as much as we could. And we contracted with the landlord to rebuild the office space and, and the warehouse space. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, the warehouse space, we were still shipping product. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, that was a, that was a dramatic setback. Um, you know, have there been other setbacks as well? Yes. Um, yeah, maybe a, a particular factory decided, you know what, you've grown our business so much. This is, this has been an incredible ride, but we're going to start our own operation now. And we thank you very much for your help. Well, all of a sudden now you're looking at somebody that you were, um, you know, an integral part with, uh, that decides they're going to pull out now. And now you have this overhead, mm. but that's when you sort that, that's when you have to develop that, that uh, you have to be nimble and you have to say, what can we do? So I came back to him with a business proposal of, we would take care of all his logistics work. And that way his initial investment in setting up a sales and operate, you know, his own operation would now be limited to just the sales department and a, and a few customer service people. And he agreed. Hmm. So you have to be nimble. You yeah. Have, you have to be able to. I, I, I think that's a great point. I think the not being too reactionary sometimes where some people try to be over the top reactionary where, oh, wow, this person working for so long together and they're, now they're pulling their business where, you know, sometimes there's this third path where it's not my way or their way, but you know, there's, there's compromise. There's something in the middle that we can agree on that works. Right. That's right. And I think sometimes people don't, um, I don't know, they either get hurt or whatever, but, and it's business and that's how it is. And present a solution that, that that's workable and generally it, it has a chance of succeeding. Yeah. One, one thing that's very important too, is that business is business and personal is personal mm. and you can't take business personal. You know, uh, I know, I know it sounds easy to say, mm -hmm. and sometimes you can get wrapped up in the moment. It's like, oh, why did that customer drop me? Or, you know, who, who knows? Or why did that employee leave me? But you know what? You've got a we've got a lot of employees that we need to that we rely upon, and that they rely and count on us too, as far as owners or as far as an owner yeah. of a company, because you know they they want to they want to be assured that they have the confidence and that they're in a good spot working for a good company and being able to move forward, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what we have to do. And I always I always have to think about that. Whenever some of these uh, you know, challenges or opportunities uh, strike you, yeah, you know, you have to sort of find that balance. No, I think I think that's a good uh, balance is a good way to um, put a cap on it. I think I like that a lot. Um, so at this point, we'd like to do what's called a quick question round. So we kind of jump into five quick questions, sure. get your take on, on those. Um, so what, what's the coolest thing that you've seen lately? And that could be either a tool, it could be a um, you know just anything, a movie, anything you've seen that you think is just pretty cool what is the coolest thing uh okay i came out of left field greg i'll be honest with you but let me let me think about this um 
growing up in England, uh, you know, our town of Newcastle upon Tyne, you know, a very blue collar town, coal mining town, shipbuilding, everything like that. Uh, they're very uh, fanatical supporters of our soccer team, mm. Newcastle United. And we haven't won a uh, haven't won a trophy. I always joke with my relatives. I says, "You realize that since I since I left England and moved to America, we haven't won a trophy." <laughs> Obviously, there's no correlation at all. I'm begging you to come back. <laughs> they want to beg me beg me to come back. So anyway, uh, they uh, they were sort of floundering a bit in the Premier League. If you if you follow soccer, and they got bought by some new owners about two years ago. Anyway, they did so phenomenally well last year that now they're in the Champions League. And what was the coolest thing that I've seen in a long, long time is being able to go to Germany about two weeks ago, go to Dortmund and watch Newcastle United play Dortmund at that stadium, the Signal Iduna uh, Stadium that holds over 81,000, of which probably 70,000 of them were rabid Dortmund fans. But just to be in that environment... Uh, with all the Newcastle supporters that came over from England uh, in the plaza, there was five or five or 8,000 of us all going to the stadium. We had over 10,000 supporters. We're all down there singing our hearts out and watching this game. And whereas we lost the environment, the experience, it was one of those bucket list items, which I told my wife, I said, I don't know if I'll ever do it again. I hope I will. But this is the first time that I've ever done this. And it was just such a cool experience. That's the most recent That's awesome. cool experience. That's really cool. That uh, that I've had. That's awesome. I really like that. Um, so this is an interesting question. I ask this to everybody, but um, it's maybe particularly uh, interesting to you because it's about tools. So um, what are some tools that you use on a day-to-day -day basis that you couldn't live without? And so for some people, it's a software tool, but for you, it might be different. I mean, you're in the tool industry, so... Um, What's the, what's the biggest tool that you couldn't live without? The way that business has evolved over the years is such that, uh, as I was describing before, working at the, at the customer service desk and using the telephone all the time and, and the mail. And, and what's happened is over the years is that emails have become so uh, such a common method of communicating. Hmm. But it should not be the only method of communicating. Uh, many times I've talked to my my staff and my sales managers that it's very important for the human interaction, face-to-face -face or talk on the telephone, and then confirm something by email. Um, you know, certainly there are times and opportunities where the email is the, is the primary method to get their attention or to at least get a response. Um, but, you know, one of the tools that I've seen that has really uh, you know worked well over the years is the you know email and the ability to communicate in, in that method whereas before you know you were at the whims of sending a letter waiting for a response uh, or calling on the telephone and this was before cell phones uh and uh, you know hope that the person was at their desk and mm. that they pick up um but today, just the, the ability to communicate is, is such that, um, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it, it was uh, it was not prevalent at all. So mm. it's been an important way to to connect with your with your customers, with your supply partners and with anybody else. Yeah, absolutely.
um, what are the net, what are the most transformational changes uh, you're looking to make over the next 90 days? And that could be personal or, or business-wise. Transformational changes. Well, one of the things that's coming up over the next 90 days is a very important um, uh, travel time because some of our major customers that are order writing shows will be happening in February, as well as the first week of March, they have a large international hardware mm. show or tool show in Cologne, Germany, which is held every two years. And obviously over the past couple of years, it's been very, um, you know, it, it hasn't occurred. It, it did occur. They had it off, off cycle type of thing, but the, this will be the first time to really get back to that show. Uh, and one of the opportunities with that show is for my, for my being able to sit down and spend some time with our each of our factory partners. They're all in one location. So it's not like a, and believe me, I would love to take a couple of months and go, yeah, let me go to Portugal, then go over to Bilbao, Spain, and go to <laughs> Wuppertal, Germany, then go to England. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, for them to all be in one environment, you know, that way we can, you know, develop our strategies, uh, see what new products they might have, uh, discuss what opportunities that we should collectively capitalize upon. So I see that as a an opportunity for establishing a, a framework for what we're going to be doing for the remainder of the year and going forward. But uh, you know, right before that, I'll be having some trade shows where we'll be doing some order writing. And you know, we write quite a bit of business at that show. We connect with not only the distributors themselves, but also their you know, their sales team, mm -hmm. the people that are out there, maybe they're calling on, uh, you know, some different accounts and th things like that. So from a business aspect, I mean, that's always a, um, an annual event mm -hmm. right around the, uh, the February, March timeframe. Um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, on a personal nature, um, you know, one of the things that I've always felt strongly about is, is, is staying healthy. And sometimes you can get into the uh, doldrums of the winter months, mm. you know, where the sun's going down at, uh, yeah. you know, it's yes. dark by 5 uh. p.m. and it's not getting light until you know, 8, 8 a.m. or something like that. But you, you have to make sure that you do things to stay healthy. And I try to stay healthy as much as possible. I still play outdoor soccer in a competitive over 35 league. But of course, you know, our games, our, our season's ending in about three weeks, and then it'll start up again the first week of March. Uh, I'll be playing indoor soccer uh, one night a week. I'll be playing volleyball with a bunch of friends from Medford Lakes one day a week. Uh, I like to go for walks. Uh, I like to try and be active. And my wife and I love playing pickleball. Nice. So one thing I learned from, from my dad is that when you do retire, you want to make sure that you have your health. And so therefore, you know, coming through this winter, you know, I want to work on different things as far as making sure that I stay healthy and stay uh, being able to stretch. You know, it, it's something that cannot, you know, it can never be underrated. Okay. No. Just staying healthy and staying limber and staying stretched. Well, those are great. I, uh, I'm with you on the stretching thing. That is probably one of the biggest things. And the biggest thing with that I've seen is consistency, you right. know, just doing it methodically on a daily or, or, you know, every few days or so, but it, it's hard. I mean, one of those things, it, it's like the first thing to go, you know, you know what I mean? When something has to go, stretching tends to be that, that thing. Um, 
What advice would you give to an entrepreneur or someone starting a business? The advice, you know, what's what's key, you know, is not only having the knowledge about your uh, particular vocation, but also having the passion. And you need to be able to communicate that passion and have it visibly evident. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, I've seen some salespeople that have come through my door. You know, they're sort of like, yeah, you want to buy this product? You know, there's no, there's no oomph to them. There's mm. no, there's no passion. And that's, that, that's what you need. And you can probably relate to some of the movies, you know, like let's say Rocky, mm. you know, what all these boxers had, you know, what did they have, Mick? They had heart. You know, they, they, they got heart, um, you know, so you need to have a passion for, for what you're doing, but you have to also make sure that you, you keep yourself, keep yourself grounded and recognize that, you know, whether you call it a snowball effect mm -hmm. versus, you know, whether you want to call it the sprint versus the marathon, um, you know, you certainly want to capitalize on the market because it may be a short-lived market. You know, if it's a if it's a new software, who knows? In six months, that you know somebody might come out with a different software. Um, you know, tools are seem to be more have more longevity to mm -hmm. them than some things in the tech industry. But you know, you want to be able to make sure that it's something where you know you have the passion and you have the passion for um, you know establishing the growth you know, at, at your pace and doing it within your means and, uh, you know, and being able to look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and saying, I did a good job today. Yeah. So, um, so this podcast is called leverage and beverage. And so I would do want to get your take on what, what is your favorite beverage? My favorite beverage. Uh, I would have to go with a beer. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the question is, well, what's your favorite beer? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the time and occasion. You know, am I going to have a Stella on the beach? No, I'm not. Okay. Am I going to have a Yingling, something like that on the beach? Yeah, I will. Uh, am I going to have, you go to a fancy restaurant? Yeah, that that's when I'll have a Stella. If I go to England, yeah, I'm probably going to have a Newcastle Brown Ale or maybe a Boddington's. Mm. If I go to an Irish pub, I'm going to order a Guinness. Mm. If I go to an Italian restaurant, I'll have a Peroni. Okay. Mm. If I go to a Mexican restaurant, I want to have a Dos Equis. Mm. So, you know, you, you have to, you have to, I have some friends that all they drink is a light beer, mm -hmm. Miller Light or Bud Light or whatever it might be. And that's the only thing that they, that they would have, uh, you know, so I would, I would say uh, go with a beer, but I, I, I need it to be, somewhat associative with the environment where I am. I'm I'm with you there. I'm in the exact same boat. So we'll have to talk more about this because I um, I'm big in the beer space and I, I love it. And it seems like you do too. So yes, absolutely. Um, we'll have to continue this conversation, but uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come out and just kind of talk about you and your history and your business. Um, so if there's any final thoughts you have, or if you want to plug anything as far as, you know, website, uh, social media or anything like that, um, the next 30 seconds or so are yours. Okay. Well, you know, as we've described over the past one hour or so is that, yes, we are a family business, uh, angloamericantools.com, specializing in European professional hand tools. 
And, um, you know, as far as being a family business, you know, it's something to, to really take a great pride in, uh, you know, you're able to control your environment and not be subject to all of a sudden, you know, somebody coming along saying, uh, your, your position's being replaced, mm-hmm. uh, but stay true to yourself. Your name is important. Integrity, very much important. Um, and also there's uh, three ideals that uh, we cater to is uh, friendship, honor, and loyalty. And in fact, I'm also, I also volunteer in some aspects with different things as well, whether it's been coaching soccer over the years for the kids or, you know, sponsoring a baseball team in Little League. Or right now, I'm also president of our alumni association at Drexel University for our fraternity Alpha Pi Lambda. I'm also on the board of our um, your condominium association. I've been president of the Morristown Football Parents Club back in 2007 or 2006 when we went to the we won the state championship. Uh, you know, so there's been a lot of uh, you get a lot of joy from also not only keeping yourself isolated within your four walls of your business or your four walls of your home, but uh, you know, branch out and and share share what you can. And everybody will remember your name. And at the end of the day, you hope that it's remembered with great pride. Awesome, Stephen. Thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go and hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms. And you'll get notifications whenever new episodes are posted. If you want to write to us or have a business that may be a good fit for the show, feel free to reach out. Our email is leverageandbeverage at gmail.com and our Instagram is at leverageandbeverage. I'm Greg Sobosinski, and as always, keep pushing forward one sip at a time.